Well, good morning. This is a, a class. It's a new class. Jonathan, can you hear me? Does it need to be louder? Maybe it's mid. Let's try this. Uh, so, uh, last week, Jonathan finished. Uh, John, I'm sorry, John Jonathan, finished his class on the providence of God. And uh, so we're moving now into a new class. This is going to be a class on the Shorter Catechism. Not not the whole of the Catechism, just a, a fairly small portion of it. To be specific, questions 19 through 28. The subject is... Christ as mediator in his, in his person and his work, which these questions involve uh, quite, quite specifically and intimately. So that's the subject, Jesus Christ himself, his person and his work. Um, I'm curious how many of you learned the catechism when you were young. Yeah, raise your hand so I can see if you don't mind. Not very many. Not very many. How many of you now presently feel like you're familiar with the catechism? You, you, you basically track with it. Uh, okay, really, really good. Okay, how many have the entire catechism memorized? How many have at least three questions and answers memorized? Oh, wow. Okay, good. 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 Okay. All right. I just wanted to kind of sound out where, where we were all out at on the catechism. Uh, I did not grow up learning it. I, I, I never even knew it existed until uh, I was probably almost 40 years old. So I've come into a deep appreciation of it uh, since then. Okay. Well, let's, let's open with a passage which is um, quite germane to the topic. Colossians chapter 1. There's actually so many passages of Paul that, that would be entirely fitting and appropriate for this subject. Paul, Paul is, is the great Christological prophet, if you will. Uh, you can tell that, that he's in his element when he's writing about the glories of Jesus Christ. Uh, he loves Jesus Christ as, as every Christian in fact does and must if we are a Christian. That, that is part of the definition of being a Christian. Uh, but Paul is, is the Christian par excellence, in a sense, and particularly when he's expressing the glories of Jesus Christ. It's very infectious, not to mention that his writings are actually the words of the Holy Spirit himself, which we're going to read now. This is Colossians 1, verses 12 through 20. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, uh, into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And now Paul launches from this point into this great praise and doxology, uh, line by line, of Christ in his person and in his work. In whom, that is in Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. 
For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Your grace that has come to us through Jesus Christ is inconceivable to us. It will be searched out to all eternity. The angels, in fact, are searching them out now and and do not reach the bottom. Jesus Christ, our life and our salvation, we praise You. Father, we thank You for Him to be our mediator. In so many ways, in countless ways, we cannot count the ways, if we would, as, as the psalmist says, if, if, if we were to try to declare and to speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Give us an appreciation, Father, by Your Spirit, of the greatness and the depths of the love of Christ, which is, in fact, Your fullness, which is incomprehensible. So help us, Father, in this class as we begin now. Be with us by Your Spirit and give us the esteem and the admiration that, that uh, you have called us to give to Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. As far as the length of this class, I, it's a big question mark for me. Um, I'm not really sure. I like to be precise and let you know how many weeks it's going to be. I don't know. Um, I'm thinking 10 to 12. So just to give you a rough figure, somewhere in that neighborhood, just so you can prepare for that. Uh, we, we, we only have about ten questions to go through, but by the very nature of the questions in the catechism, uh, there's an organic relation of all of them to each other in some ways, in a similar way that Scripture, in fact, is. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to look at some other questions besides the ones just that we're looking at. <laughs> Well, I'll just let that stand. Uh, so it's really only about ten questions, uh, and you would think surely you can go through one question and answer per week. They're very short. They're very brief. Uh, but that's that's an experience. That's not the way that I'm finding it to work out. So, uh, just so we know. Now, I want to begin with a a passage in the introduction of a book by John Flavel, the Puritan John Flavel. Uh, his years are 1628 to 1691, almost exactly uh, the years of, say, John Bunyan. John Bunyan and, and John Flavel were born in exactly the same year, 1628. Uh, this particular book, this is volume one of like six volumes that Banner puts out, and the title of this is, is, uh, is, is the subject of our class, the, founda- the, the Fountain of Life. 
a display of Christ in his essential and mediatorial glory. I just, I just love that. I mean, I could just read that over and over again and be quite delighted at, at that thought. So I'll read it again. The fountain of life, a display of Christ in his essential and mediatorial glory. So in the beginning, he's justifying his reason for writing this book because many, many, many men have written on the subject of Jesus Christ and his person and work in the whole history of the church, particularly in England in the, in the 17th century. Puritans, one after another after another, took their turn at writing on this subject. And so he's trying to justify himself. Why am I writing another book? This is actually... Uh, typical protocol, I suppose, for any author. You, you find that in the beginning. Or why am I writing this book? Uh, and this is what John Flavel is doing. So let me begin here and, and, and just read a paragraph or two to, to hopefully whet our appetite for this great subject. He says, Such breadth there is in the knowledge of Christ that not only those who have written on this subject before me, but a thousand authors more may employ their pens after us and not interfere with or straighten one another. And such is the deliciousness of this subject that were there 10,000 volumes written upon it, upon it, they would never tire or become nauseous to a gracious heart. For such is the variety of sweetness in Christ who is the delights of the children of men that every time he is open to believers, whether from the pulpit or from books, it is as if heaven had furnished them with a new Christ, and yet he is the same Christ still. The whole world is not a theater large enough to show the glory of Christ upon or unfold the one half of the unsearchable riches that lie hid in him. These things will be far better understood and spoken of in heaven by the noonday divinity, in other words, the actual presence of Christ in his person there, beholding him, far better understood then, in which the immediately illuminated assembly do there preach his praises. And now he's not talking about our future, but the present enjoyment that the saints in glory now have, even as we're speaking right now. This is what he's speaking of. Alas, he he continues, I write... Christ's praises but by moonlight. I cannot praise Him so much as by halves. Indeed, no tongue but His own is sufficient to undertake that task. Right there you have Christ in His office of prophet, which we'll come to at, at the proper time. No tongue but His own is sufficient to undertake that task. What shall I say of Christ? The excelling glory of that object dazzles all apprehension, swallows up all expression. When we have borrowed metaphors from every creature that hath any excellency or lovely property in it in this world, till we have stripped the whole creation bare of all its ornaments and clothed Christ with all of that glory, when we have even worn out our tongues in ascribing praises to Him, alas, when we have done all this, we have done nothing. Nothing at all when all is done. That, that's, that's, that just, um, any comment after that would, would diminish things. So that's John Flavel, uh, Volume 1, Banner of Truth. Get it, read it, love it. It's, it's most excellent. Now, last Sunday night, uh, we had a sermon on... Pentecost, and one of the things that Pastor Sharp said, which which 
was a great point was that Pentecost itself was an event in the history of salvation, much like the crucifixion, the resurrection, Christ's ascension. Pentecost was an unrepeatable historic event, and yet there were key elements in that event that are repeatable and, in fact, recur in the history of the church under Christ, our head, who sends his spirit, as he did on the day of Pentecost. Not in the same historic outpouring, but there are, there are outpourings of the Holy Spirit under Christ the head, who, who is behind all of the work of the Spirit in this world. Well, I, I wanted to, to go back. You, you may remember last year we were studying the Great Awakening, and uh, there was one particular local awakening in uh, Lyme, Connecticut, under the, the preacher at that time, Jonathan Parsons, who is a good friend of George Whitfield. In fact, Parsons and Whitfield are buried together in Newburyport uh, in New England. Uh, Whitfield died. He preached his last sermon in the stairwell of Jonathan Parsons' home with the light of a candle wavering and flickering, and he preached for two hours on the staircase to to a whole living room full of people who heard his last sermon, that's Whitfield's sermon, and then he went upstairs, and a few hours later he was dead uh, during the night. So this is that Jonathan Parsons, and he's giving an account of some of the, the, the goings-on in his church at this time. This is in the year 1741, which was the height of the Great Awakening. We had seasons of divine influence, says Parsons, but I cannot pass over our Pentecost. October 11th, 1741. Uh, he had just finished preaching a sermon uh, out of Psalm 2 uh, from the verse, Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish from the way. Kiss the sun. That was the theme of his sermon. And uh, there were visible signs of, of affection, deep affection growing in, in the church during this sermon. After the sermon, then he says, this was a day never to be forgotten. The house of the Lord was full of glory, full of the glory of the Lord, especially at the Lord's Supper. God poured out His Spirit in a wonderful measure. I could not think but that the Lord Jesus Himself was come to His table, feasting our souls with His love, discovering to us His mediatorial glories. Many old Christians told me that they had never seen so much of the glory of the Lord and of the riches of His grace, nor felt so much power of the gospel before, or been so sensible of the love of God to them, nor had such strong love to Him. You, you see the operation of the Holy. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, increases our knowledge, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and increases our love to Him and our faith in Him. Uh, nor, I'll continue, nor had such strong love to Him. Several told me they had the full assurance of faith who had been seeking it for many years. Christ then appeared more lovely than the princes of this world to all of us. We sat under His shadow with great delight. We feasted in His banqueting house and His fruit was sweet unto our taste. He's borrowing there from a passage in Song of Solomon. And then he says this to conclude, and actually what I've just read is, is severely Truncated. Uh, it's a very small portion of all that he wrote. I was just picking out some to, to give us a taste for this recurring 
uh, event, not the event itself, historically speaking, but key elements that recur in the history of the church. He concludes this way, The testimony is abundant that such beholdings of the glory of the Lord truly exerted a transforming influence on our people, making them more humble, more kind, more patient, more ready for every good work, more entirely amiable in the eyes of all who love true goodness. So you see, he's, he's making this, this immediate connection with the discoveries that Christ gives of his mediatorial glory to his people with the work of sanctification. You, you see how eminently practical such labor is when we labor to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it, it immediately works itself out in the life uh, it's, not, it's not a vain mystical experience. Certainly there are vain mystical experiences to be had, uh, but the true spiritual beholding of Jesus Christ, when He reveals Himself, when He discovers Himself to us, uh, is, is not a vain mystical experience at all. It's, it's the pith of our sanctification. It truly is. It truly is. Well, the, the phrase that, that I wanted to, to draw out of this entire passage was just this. He was discovering unto us his mediatorial glories. That's, that's the subject of our class, and, and that's what we want to labor to do as we look through, uh, it, it may be a fairly academic procedure to go through catechism questions and answers. Uh, it is not dry. Uh, it is not academic. There is an academic aspect to it. Uh, there's an intellectual exercise going on. Our affections are, are really directionless unless they're inflamed through our understanding. It's our mind that is renewed, uh, as Paul says. And the mind being renewed, the, infe- the, the affections are inflamed. That's, that's, that's the classic Puritan method. Enlighten the understanding uh, through the method of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit himself does. Again, enlightening the mind in the knowledge of Christ, and then renewing the will, and enlarging the affections. So that's, that's our goal in this class. It's our single goal uh, to, to search, as it were, uh, for Christ, to study Him. There's a wonderful verse in Psalm 111 where David says, uh, Great are the works of the Lord, sought out or studied by all them that have pleasure therein. And that, that, that sums up what I hope that, that, that we'll be doing in this class for the next several weeks. And when I say discovering unto us his mediatorial glories, uh, there's a distinction that we want to make right at the outset between the essential glory of Christ's Godhead, which is invisible and incomprehensible uh, in, in, in the depths of the deity. That's, that's one glory which, which we will never search out. Uh, we, we can never even see, in fact, uh, not as he is in himself, uh, as Paul says, in light inaccessible, in light inaccessible, whom no man hath seen nor can see. Uh, the confession two one says this about God. And when don't make the very elementary mistake of thinking that when we speak of God as invisible and unapproachable and so forth, that we're speaking in terms of the person of the Father. It is not correct to think in that way. We're thinking about the divine nature which the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all share together equally and fully and perfectly and infinitely. So we're talking about the divine nature 
when we speak in this way. Not the Father as if the Son himself is not infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. So is the Son in his divine nature. So there's, there's the essential Godhead and then there's the persons of the Godhead. Or the imminent trinity, theologians call it, versus the economic trinity. The economy of the, trini- of, of, of the trinity being the works, the acts of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Particularly in reference to salvation and redemption. And that's really how, that's the only safe way, in fact I think John Owen put it, that's the only safe way to study the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Is not in what he is in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but what he does as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I had interrupted myself, I apologize. 2.1 in the Confession says, Infinite in being and perfection, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible. You see all these negative descriptions, and that's important. We see negative descriptions here. Infinite, that is not finite. What is he? Well, we don't know, but we know what he's not, and we're going to rule out the things we know that God is not. He's not finite, so we say he's infinite. He's not visible, so we say he's visible. He's not, immu- he's not mutable or changeable, so we say he's immutable. What exactly that means, we spend eternity trying to discover. Uh, he's immense. That is, he's, not, he's not limited or local. He, he is omnipresent. That's another way of putting uh, this term immense. He's not comprehensible. He's incomprehensible. He's not with a body parts or passions, and therefore he's without body parts or passions, or impassable, or simple. These are all terms that we can use to describe God. And essentially, they're ruling out all the creaturely aspects uh, when we try to understand God, and, and, and understand him as a, as, again the confession puts, a most pure spirit. Okay, so, that's the one in our distinction. We're, we're not studying Christ in his essential Godhead and glory. We're studying him in his person. We're studying him in his person and in his works as he has come forth as the only mediator between God and man. That's the subject of our study. And when I say as he's come forth, uh, again, we don't want to understand this just when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's when he appeared in this world. That's when he took on human nature. That's not when he began to be mediator. And that's an important point. We'll we'll, we'll come to that. Um, He became mediator first in the eternal councils. Actually, I take that back. The plan in the eternal councils from all eternity was for him to become mediator at a certain point. The point at which he became mediator was as soon as man sinned. As soon as man sinned, a mediator was utterly necessary if annihilation and eternal destruction and the curse of God would fall undiluted and unmixed upon man. The fact that it did not happen the moment man sinned was an indication to the creature that God had some interposition occurring here. And the interposition was the mediator who from all eternity had been eagerly awaiting. And again, that's creaturely language. We can't say he was awaiting because he was in eternity and it was timeless. Uh, but to use the creaturely language, uh, some anthropomorphism here, he was eagerly waiting, delighting, 
in the children of men, as it says in Psalms 8. And the father was delighting in the son, knowing all that was going to be accomplished. And because it was in the decree of God, this is very lofty, heady stuff, but because it was in the decree of God, it was as if, as it were, it had already occurred. Because the decree of God is to God the occurrence. There is no, when we make a decree or we have a wish or a goal, there's some time lagging between the inception of it in our mind and the occurrence of it, and there's a big if involved. It may or may not happen. With God, it was utterly infallible, the moment that He had decreed it, that all these things would come to pass. And so, Peter says, and he sums up, he, he, he sums up the entire uh, spectrum, if you will, of this this plan for Christ as mediator and His accomplishment as mediator in one verse, in 1 Peter 1.20, who verily, Peter says, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. And so first, in the eternal counsels, no beginning to these eternal counsels. That's mind-blowing. No beginning. But then, all the way through to the fullness of time, when Christ was born of a woman and born under the law. So that's, that's the time, quote-unquote, spectrum that we're dealing with when we think of, of Christ as mediator. But, but especially once that first sin uh, is committed, now he has stepped in, he has interposed himself between God and man to do the work of a mediator, even in the Old Testament, certainly in the Old Testament, but more openly, manifestly in the new, in, in the day in which we live. So those are the two ways of understanding, as he in himself and as he has been revealed and manifested as the mediator. Now, Peter, who I just quoted, uh, refers also to the prophets searching into and inquiring into these things. Uh, It had been revealed to them by the Spirit. The Spirit who, Peter says, uh, testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. That's another wonderful encapsulation. First Peter chapter 1 is like, along with Ephesians 1, like two, and Hebrews 1, these are some of the great, great chapters in the Bible that if we just, if we, if we just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and get comfortable and study Ephesians 1, Hebrews 1, 1 Peter 1, and master these short texts in the New Testament, we, we I mean, we're theologians if, with the Spirit's help if we understand these three chapters. So, the prophet searched and inquired into these things, the sufferings of Christ, the glory that should follow. When we think of, of, uh, in fact, Jesus alludes to this in in the last chapter of the book of, of, of Luke's Gospel. The law, the Psalms, the prophets, and we can bring in now, in retrospect, the, the, the apostles as well in the New Testament. They were all converging into this single, all their separate lines were converging and finding their ultimate rest in the person of Jesus Christ Himself. That's the, that's the entire point of the entire Bible. There's ancillary doctrines and so forth, but all have their cohesion as they adhere to Jesus Christ Himself. The angels themselves, uh, Peter also says, uh, desire to look into these things. So, what, there, there is no... There, there is no exception. Uh, this, this is... <laughs> uh, okay. Um, 
Let me put it this way. There is no greater doctrine, there is no greater thing to understand in this world that the Scriptures reveal than Jesus Christ in His person and His work. That's how I'll put that. Uh, It's the life and soul of the church. Always, from the foundation, from the beginning of the world, since that first sin, and the church was then formed, uh, under the headship of the mediator, uh, from that time forth, this has been the life and the soul of the church. Not just on earth, but in heaven. There is the church in heaven as well, and we don't want to forget that. And I want to make something, uh, something about that in the next few minutes. So, in the eternal councils from the beginning of time, and then when we go forward and we think of the church in the future, into eternity, uh, we can come to a book like Revelation and see that this praise will sound forth from men and angels, and even John, the revelator, says from every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth, uh, in the seas and all that are in them, praising the Son of God. So, let's, let's go, and I want to read a portion out of Revelation chapter 5. Chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Without going into detail here, here's Christ as prophet, priest, and king. If you look closely at that description, you'll see those three offices being fulfilled in that image that John sees of the lamb slain. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the the beasts and the elders, and the numbers of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So you, you, you can see how Flavel, John Flavel, certainly was justified in, in his over-the-top praising of this great theme that can never be exhausted. And when we've said all when we've said all that, it, that can be said from the creature's mouth, it's as if we had said nothing at all. Such, such is the, the infinite glory of Christ in His person and His, his work. Well, we made a distinction before between His glory as He is in Himself, which is inaccessible to, to the human mind. Uh, God, God knows Himself alone. Uh, when we think of God... Uh, we're thinking of infinite mind 
delighting and knowing thoroughly infinite nature. That's, uh, again, that's Joe, we can't comprehend that. Infinite mind, knowing and delighting in infinite nature. We, we, cannot, we cannot get into that. And yet, as close as possible, Christ the Mediator has brought us into and will continue through all eternity, bringing us into that, on the, on the fringes, as it were, tasting, delighting, seeing. So we made that distinction between what he is in himself and as he has come forth as mediator. I want to make another distinction here. When we speak of, of, of Christ's mediatorial glory, there's two perspectives we can view it from. The perspective in heaven as the saints in heaven and the angels see that mediatorial glory and as we see it on earth. Um, it's the same glory we're viewing. One is viewed by sight, naked sight. The other is viewed by faith. And, and we're in the faith camp until we pass into glory and we behold him as he is and become like him because we'll see him as he is. But that same process, that same principle is actually occurring now in a way of sanctifying viewing by faith the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So the saints immediately behold Christ crucified, exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high uh, as, as he sheds forth his beams as it were, of his mediatorial glory. And they, be, they behold. Uh, this is actually a fulfillment of Christ's promise in John 17. Some of the last things uh, that he said and that the disciples heard him say in his prayer to the Father when he says, Father, I will that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. He's giving us a peek, as it were, into those eternal counsels before the foundation of the world when the Father and the Son made this agreement, as it were, and again, this is creaturely language, in which the Son would accomplish all of these things. And this was glory now that was being given to him. This is not his essential, the glory of his Godhead. This is the glory of Christ as mediator that the Father has given him as a result of him fulfilling this covenant of redemption. There's a lot of theological ideas going on here. That's the glory that has accrued to him because of his work of redemption that the Father is now giving him. Uh, Again, there's so many New Testament passages in this regard. Philippians 2, uh, Ephesians 1. Uh, There's so many wonderful passages here. But this is what Jesus is speaking of. And now it's fulfilled. They, they have come in to the throne room, as it were, at the throne of grace, and they're beholding His glory that the Father has given Him. And by so doing, they have become like Him. Thomas Manton, another Puritan, says this, a wonderful short statement, We go to heaven to study divinity in the face of the Lamb. <laughs> That's so rich. We, we go to heaven to study divinity in the face of the Lamb. Of the Lamb. That's what the saints in heaven are now doing. We're still studying divinity line by line, but not without, not without the work, the divine work of the Holy Spirit, Christ sending Him forth, shedding forth His glory in our hearts. So that says they behold Him in heaven. Now, as we, the saints, in the meantime, uh, behold Him. We're not, we're not shut out from that glory in heaven. That's important for us to remember, particularly as we come into public worship. We're not shut out from that glory. We're, we're only participating in true spiritual worship to the degree and in the proportion that we're, 
we're joining hands, as it were, and spirits and hearts and minds with those glorified saints in heaven who are immediately around the throne. We're, we're a campus, as it were, on earth, but we're joining that central, central point where Christ's manifested glory shines forth. All Christians, every Christian, all Christians, the weakest believer, the strongest believer, the believer most laden with sins and the one that's most advanced in sanctification, all of us together are vitally united with Christ who is in heaven right now, presently, effectually saving us to the uttermost. We are come to Mount Zion, says the author of of Hebrews. We're come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the firstborn, uh, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. I want to read a passage out of Owen. uh, Again, to, to whet our appetite in this way. This is what John Owen in his book on the person of Christ. Another gem, volume one, banner of truth. The present state and condition of the person of Christ in heaven is the exercise and discharge of his mediatorial office in behalf of the church. All Christians acknowledge that this present state, his present state, is a state of the highest glory, of exaltation above the whole creation of God, above every name that is named or can be named, that he can do whatever he pleaseth, which is the ground of their placing all their confidence in him. But then he goes further and says, but Christ's present state is not only a state of glory, it is a state of office power, work, and duty. And this is intimately concerned with our affairs. Christ leads not in heaven a life of mere glory, majesty, and blessedness, but a life of office, love, and care also. He lives as the mediator of the church, as the king, priest, and prophet, Herein does our present safety and our future eternal salvation depend. Without the continual actings of the office power and care of Christ, the church could not be preserved one moment. It doesn't matter what we believe. Uh, it It does matter. But what I'm saying is that our preservation does not depend on the knowledge that we have. It depends on the office care and power of Jesus Christ maintaining his church as the apple of his eye in this world. And, and infallibly, he will bring every redeemed saint that the Father has given him in to, to proximate intimate, in intimacy with the saints in heaven. We are one body. We are one body. And he will bring us there. I'll continue. Uh, and the darkness of our faith herein, he says is the cause of all our disconsolations and most of our weaknesses in obedience. You catch that? Most of the weaknesses in our obedience, he says, can be directly traced to to our lack of vision of Christ at the throne of grace interceding for us as our mediator. So it's all important. It's all important to have him disclose, to discover to us his mediatorial glories. Well, I could read more. I mean, I... If we had time, we could just read the whole book. But I'll stop there. Colossians 3.1, as as we try to round this off to a close here. Colossians 3.1, If ye then be risen with Christ, 
seek those things which are above. That, that's what Paul is Paul is, is is guiding our vision to exactly what we've been talking about. If you've been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For Christ our life. Christ our life. When He shall appear, then we shall appear with Him in glory. And then another verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, we all behold the glory of Christ as it were with unveiled face and are transformed from glory to glory into the same image. And then he adds, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So here is, and, and in fact in that passage, if you read it closely, Paul is, is virtually making no distinction between the Son of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord Himself, he's referring to Christ, he says, is that Spirit. That's dangerous language, but it's an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit using that language. So what we're to understand, at least from that, is that the work of Christ is the work of the Spirit in the believer, and the work of the Spirit is the work of Christ as head, immediately working upon us. They have the same eternal, essential Godhead. It is, it is the one God working upon us, it may be two persons, but this, this, is, this is ineffable. It is Christ. It is the Spirit of Christ. Uh, that's, that's worthy of much study in and of itself. So we behold His glory, in other words, as He discovers Himself to us by His Spirit. He's discovering His mediatorial glories to us by His Holy Spirit. But this is the standing rule. It doesn't just, it doesn't just happen uh, as we lay passively by. It happens as we obey His standing rule, which we've already heard from Paul. If you've risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. This is a, it's in the imperative. Seek. It's in the imperative tense. Paul is not leaving us at liberty uh, whether we want to do this or not. This is a duty of the Christian. And if, if I call myself a Christian and, and I decline from this duty of seeking intently the face of God in Jesus Christ, I really have no warrant to call myself a Christian, and, and that in itself could be a chief source of my lack of assurance. So this is a duty of Christians. But this is, this is the wonderful thing, and this is where the gospel comes in. It is a duty. It's a duty of the gospel. But what's the promise of the gospel? I'll write my law in their heart. So along with this standing rule, which is imperative, it's also the natural, inborn, upward motion of the new creature. It absolutely is. This is the Spirit of Christ in us, indwelling us, causing us to cry out, as we've heard recently, Abba, Father, to draw near to the throne of grace boldly. Um, so there's a rule. But the new creature and the, the, the spiritual law written in our hearts matches exactly the rule. That's the beauty of the new covenant, is that it's not engraved in tablets of stone, not with ink, but in fleshy tables of the heart by the Spirit of God. That's again going back to 2 Corinthians 3. So, uh, a, a wonderful Old Testament passage uh, giving, giving some lively illustration to this is in Song of Solomon, when it is said, I sought him whom my soul loveth. That's the natural upward motion. Or, or David, who says in Psalm 24, One thing have I desired, of the Lord. That will I seek after. This is the verse, this is probably the favorite verse of, of a dozen of us in this room. 
uh, one thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to behold the glory of the Lord, or to gaze upon the glory of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. That, that's it. Again, that sums up. Uh, and we will fall far, far short of this. I don't mean to say this is what's actually, uh, you, you know, we're going to raise to the level of the things I've been speaking of here in our actual experience. But that's our goal. That's the North Star, or the Pole Star, that, that, that we're aiming towards, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So that's, that's an introduction to the class. Next week we'll start in earnest uh, on question 19. Um, and we may read as an intro next week, um, just read very quickly through all of them so we kind of see the scope and the lay of the land. So uh, let's, let's close in prayer and be dismissed. Father, these are great things and, and our words fall so far short of the truths that have been expressed in these, in these scriptural texts that we have read and the thoughts that, that we have had before us. So help us. You are our Father. We are entitled to and we desire to call you Abba, Father. And to cry out such words, not just to say them. So be with us as, as the weeks ensue and be with us especially as we come into worship now. That you would be with us in the preaching and be with us in your supper as well, that we might meet with you and and be on intimate terms with you and to feed upon you, Lord Jesus, our life and our breath and our salvation and our song. We ask all these things, Father, in our Savior's name. Amen.